Well, Alan and I went to the game yesterday, the Ole Miss game. We heard something about rain. We prepared for it. Had a Gore-Tex jacket on. We called Hannah in the Grove about five minutes before arriving to Oxford. She said it was sunny skies. We pay our $20, we park, we get about 50 yards away from our vehicle and the bottom falls out. We found the limits of any Gore-Tex we had on our bodies. Before we knew it, we were wading through rivers of water. Got to the Grove, it was a muddy river, and we were sogging wet. So we huddled underneath the Union, then it lightened up, we went to a tent, poured down, en route to that tent, lightened up again, we decided, well, we'll try the stadium. Leave that tent, and it comes a downpour again, and I head into the stadium. Well, when we get the stadium, it would be better. But then there's waterfalls coming through the bleachers in the stadium. We get up and look at the field, and it's covered with water. These young people don't have shirts on, running muddy through the stadium. Just a madhouse. And uh, we endured for a little while longer, maybe three hours soggy. And we said, well, we've had enough. we got to go. So we knew the way home, but we needed someone to kind of pick us up and help us out. So Hannah, we walked to our car at the square. She takes us to a trusty Dollar General. We buy new clothes. <laughs> we go to her apartment. We get dry and warm, put on our new clothes. <laughs> she orders us some pizza. We regroup, sit around for a little while until we're ready to get back in our car and limp our way back to Tupelo. We needed not just to know the way home, we need a person to kind of help us get there. So last week we looked at the tabernacle as God's map. It's God's map to show us the way back home. And it's a picture of God's home. Amazingly, he gave his people a picture of what heaven is like through physical things. In some way it reflects heaven. And it reflects the mountain of God. It was a mobile mountain where heaven met earth. And it also reflects Eden itself, our true home where we were banished from. It's the true home we belong to. It's also a pathway home. It shows us what we need, what we go through in order to get back home. And so we look at the furnishings of the tabernacle, and we see in the bronze altar that we need an atoning sacrifice for our sin. We look at the bronze basin that we need to be washed clean we look at the golden lampstand that we need light in our darkness. We look at the table of bread. We need provision and communion all along the journey. We look at the altar of incense. We need prayer, sustaining prayer. We look at the Ark of the Covenant. We need a covering between us and God's law. And that's what the gospel provides. The gospel is this diamond with multiple facets and all that furnishing brings it to light for us and covers that particular need that we have, and it's just beautiful. But today we look at another element equally indispensable in order to get back home. We don't just need a picture of home. We don't just need a pathway to get home. We need the right person to take us by the hand and lead us home. So Tim Chester, the pastor commentator, says it beautifully. He goes, we can't get home to God on our own. 
We need a guide. We need a road maker and a bridge builder. Philip Ryken says it this way, the tabernacle was not self-service. Did you like that? Rather, its sacred duties were performed by holy men with a holy calling. We needed the priests. And in particular, we need a high priest. And the gospel gives us a high priest. And so we're looking at Exodus 28. And we're just going to look at one aspect of this, breaking it up into two parts. We'll look at 29 next week. Today we're looking at the clothing of the high priest. It's kind of tedious for us to read all that. But just like the furnishings of the tabernacle, the clothing tells us the kind of high priest that's not just helpful to have, but indispensable to have. That sinners like you and me that want to get back home to a relationship with God and stay there in fellowship with God must have. I want to look at it through the the lens of Hebrews 7.25, that Jesus, our high priest, is able to save us to the uttermost. And we see how he brings what, we, what, the, what the clothing teaches us in chapter 28 to its fulfillment in his person and work for us today on your behalf. I'm just going to read part of the chapter, verse 1 to verse 5, chapter 28. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him, from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, coat of checker work, a turban and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. The grass withers and the flowers fade. And this gospel in pictures endures forever. So the high priest's clothing, the high priest's clothing teaches us so much about who you and I really need to lead us back home. In verse 2, God commands Moses to make holy garments for Aaron for glory and for beauty. Holy garments for glory and and for beauty. And the high priest was the original sharp-dressed man. He was the sharp-dressed man of Israel. There was no one like him. It was meant to be that way. Holiness, glory, beauty. You know, these are attributes of God. We, in our call to worship, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Psalm 27, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to worship Him in His sanctuary. Those are attributes of God. Beauty, holiness, glory. So the high priest's clothes were meant to reflect who God is for man. God's holiness, glory, and beauty 
and to show what you and I must be like to enter into such a God's presence, holy, glorious, beautiful. And so his clothing didn't express what the high priest was like in and of himself because he was a sinner just like the rest of the Israelites. Hebrews 5.2 says he was beset with the very same weakness that they had. And that's kind of the beauty of it, that he was able to identify with them as one of them. His clothing was a uniform. It was a uniform that portrayed what it meant, what he was meant to be. It was a uniform that showed his office, what his office required and what he represented and what he was taking the people by the hand and leading them into. He was God's authorized representative for sinful man to represent them and bring them into God's presence. In him, they were viewed that way. In fact, his clothing, as you see, was fabricated with the very same materials as the tabernacle itself. The tabernacle, the tabernacle proper was comprised of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarn. And he was too. If he stood next to the walls, you might not be able to see him. He looked so much like the tabernacle. He was a mini tabernacle. He was embodied the tabernacle, the tabernacle in miniature. It showed that he belonged there. He was fit for that place. He was the right man for the job. Just like heaven came to earth in the tabernacle, so heaven came to earth in the high priest. Just like the people went home in the tabernacle, so they went home in and through the high priest. And so we see Christ. The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory the glory as of the one and only come from the Father full of grace and truth. The high priest's clothing, glorious, holy, beautiful. The son didn't have to wear them. In fact, he gave any outward display of holiness, beauty, and glory, left it behind. Because, you see, the clothes don't make the man. And the Son of God was a real deal. And He's the God-man. And He is intrinsically, by nature, the attributes of holiness, glory, and beauty. Heaven comes to earth in the Son. And in the Son, we go back to heaven. He's the man for the job. The first piece of clothing is the ephod. And this ephod is the foundational Peace. That's the one that gets mentioned so much throughout the Old Testament at significant moments. It's this long sleeveless vest kind of apron with these prominent straps over the shoulder. And the cloth was intricately woven with that gold, blue, purple, scarlet yarn and fine white linen. And it's that defining feature of the shoulder strap that's so important 
affixed on the shoulder in gold filigree were these rectangular black stones, onyx stones, one on each shoulder. And you recall what the purpose was. A jeweler engraved on each of them, likely in gold, the names of the six tribes of Israel. So on one of these stones, on one shoulder, you had Reuben and Simeon and Judah and Dan and Naphtali and Gad. On the other, you had Asher and Issachar and Zebulun and Ephraim and Manasseh and Benjamin. So you had the names of the tribes, six on one, six on the other. Verse 12 tells us why. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. So the picture is the high priest was called to lift all the people up onto his shoulders and carry them into God's presence. And he especially did that when he offered those sacrifices and took the blood and sprinkled the altar and sprinkled the Ark of the Covenant He carried the people up onto his shoulders and bore them into God's presence. You know, if you have a big load, you're probably going to end up putting it on your shoulder at some point. It's the place of strength. And the idea is that that you're a lot, that I'm a lot. The, The load's heavy. It takes a very strong person to bear us up, to deal with what God has to deal with, but we have a very powerful mediator, and we're just not too much for him, and he puts us on his shoulders, and he carries us into God's presence. It reminds me of that illustration we often use around Christmas time, C.S. Lewis and Miracles, where he views Jesus in the incarnation like this big, strong man who comes around a corner, and he sees this guy trapped underneath a cart with this heavy load on the cart. Nobody can, nobody can do anything. He's going to suffocate. And this big, strong man stoops, stoops, stoops in his incarnation. He stoops and he gets that shoulder underneath that cart and just lifts it up. It shows our high priest is strong. He's enough. He's enough to deal with you. And he puts you on his shoulders. He, he did that when he accomplished your redemption. When you see him weary, bloody, and beaten, and carrying that cross to Golgotha, you see him carrying your sin. He does that when he applies redemption as your high priest. Every day, he just puts you on his back with all the cares you have and all those sin patterns you have. He just carries you into God's presence, prays for you, applies that redemption, that fresh blood that he shed for you right there before no one can make an accusation against you because he's there. He bears us on his two shoulders for remembrance. As he does that, God remembers you. It's not like he ever forgets you. It's just that God presents himself as a man that needs remembering because he likes to be reminded And as Jesus carries you on his back and interceding for you, God remembers you not just cognitively like you exist 
He remembers you and that He had you on His mind in eternity and came after you and made a promise to redeem you. And He is loving kindness towards you. Second item of clothing, and really the chief one because it's the most costly, is the breast piece. It was a square cloth, a span wide and long. A span is this distance, about nine inches. So it's a square piece of cloth of the same fabric, gold, blue, purple, scarlet yarn, fine linen. And the breast piece, if you recall, was secured to the ephod. There was these gold rings right here. So it was right here, gold rings with gold chains that took it to the the shoulder straps and then linen ones that connected it to the bottom portion of the ephod. So it was, it was securely fastened right here. It wasn't going anywhere. And the most noteworthy feature of it was the four rows of precious stones. Precious stones. And so you had these four rows. First row was sardius, topaz, carbuncle. We're not sure what all those are, but they're precious. The second is emerald, sapphire, and diamond. Third, jacinth, agate, amethyst. The fourth, beryl, onyx, and jasper. So each of these 12 stones were set in gold, but most important of all was that they were engraved with a jeweler, probably in gold, with each of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 29 tells us why. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And again in verse 30, thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. So much beautiful truth. First is, God represents each of the 12 tribes of Israel, not with a piece of wood or bronze or something common, clay. He represents each of the 12 tribes with these gleaming, brilliant, radiant, costly, exquisite jewels. And it it, it symbolizes that truth that he spoke back in chapter 19 when he looked at his people that had been slaves and refuse except for their productivity. And he said to them, you are my treasured possessions. And the kings owned it all. But amidst all their possessions, they had a room where their special treasures were. And they liked to go in those rooms and look at those particularly valuable objects. Maybe they had sentimental value. And he's looking at them and saying, you are that to me. And now we see it symbolized on the clothing of the high priest. And so maybe breast piece of judgment means God's decision about you. God judged that you are his treasured possession. Our fallen nature tells us that we are other. doesn't want that to be the verdict we admit that God has made over us. But we look at the clothing of the high priest. God says you are his treasured possession. Another incredibly endearing truth 
is that the high priest carried the names of each of the 12 tribes, not only on his shoulders because we're heavy, but he also carries our names fastened securely right over his heart. And he says it twice for emphasis. Philip Ryken says it was his responsibility not only to bear the people's burdens on his shoulders, but also to have their interests at heart. They were bound to him with cords of love and affection the way the stones were tied to the ephod close to his heart. He loves you like he loves his people. He didn't just, he's not just powerful enough to deal with us, but he delights and cherishes and loves his people. So the high priest went about all his work, all that stuff he was always doing and especially offering sacrifices. And the text says he does it regularly over and over again. And he's bringing them to remembrance, but he's not just doing it because he has to. The high priest does it because he loves the people. They're on his heart. He doesn't just bear their burdens, but he holds their interests dear. And through him, we see God holding your interests dear. And again, he brings them to remembrance, not because God forgets. Back in chapter 2, the whole reason God went to redeem Israel is because he remembered them and visited them. It's God's idea. It speaks of prayer, really, where we bring things to God's remembrance We claim promises that God's the one that made them. We tell God about things that He is fully aware of those things, but He likes us to visit with Him about them. And it's through that conversation that He brings the power of heaven to bear in your life. And we see the high priest doing that because He loves the people. Think of Jesus. Jesus is that perfect high priest who carries your name written in his heart. Think of him accomplish your redemption when that spear pierced his side and that pericardial fluid flowed out, blood and water, such that Martin Lloyd-Jones says Jesus ultimately died of a broken heart. He goes to the cross because he loves you. And therefore, think of him applying redemption at the throne room of God and all those interests you carry in your heart that maybe you think don't interest him quite as much as they interest you. And the high priest, fulfilled in Christ, holds your dreams and desires, cherishes them as he intercedes for you before the throne of grace. He saves us to the uttermost. And then as an aspect of that breast piece, we look at a particular part of it in that vertical pocket because it was folded over, doubled, so there's a vertical pocket. In there was a, the Urim and Thummim, which I have trouble pronouncing every time. But scholars don't know exactly what it was, but it was some sort of decision-making device like, like dice, maybe a black stone and a white stone, something like that. But the high priest was charged in moments of national security for the king. He could cast them to the ground and God would determine what he wanted them to do through it. And therefore, breast piece of judgment could be breast piece of making decisions. But now for the common man, like you and me, 
We didn't get our own Urim and Thummims. That was unique. So maybe breast piece of judgment is also that the priest has to teach people about God and his ways so we can know him and make good decisions. And that's what the regular person had to do. So maybe the breast piece of judgment also said the priest is here, the high priest is here to teach you the ways of the Lord, to reveal it to you. And so again, we see Jesus resurrected on high, ascended. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, he tells us. Jesus sends us the Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth. We see this aspect of his intercession too, to guide us and direct us. Third, and there's seven pieces, but they don't take as long. The third item of clothing is the blue robe. And it's like a poncho that reaches to the knees, a little longer than the ephod. This blue robe had a hem, and it was ornamented with pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, then alternating with these little gold bells. So pomegranate, bell, pomegranate, bell. So we wonder what's going on with that. It's all important for Jesus' high priesthood. The blue color reveals that he belongs to heaven. Blue is pretty prominent in the tabernacle proper. It raises the eyes of people to heaven and to glory. The priest is the heavenly man, as Paul calls Jesus, the true heavenly man. Well, how about the pomegranates? Well, there were these reddish and round fruit. There were common decorations in the ancient Near East. But they also symbolized fruitfulness, and they probably symbolized the Garden of Eden in this context, surrounded by cherubim. The high priest leads us back to Eden. Well, how about those bells that jingle as he walks around doing his high priestly responsibilities for the people? On the one hand, the bells announce his presence to God because you don't barge into God's presence. It takes a certain man to do so. But on the part of the people, think, they hear the high priest walking around as they pass the tabernacle. And they know that God hadn't smote him. He's okay. They know that sinners can't just enter. It takes a mediator. And they know that they have a high priest who's pleading their cause before the throne of grace. And they can be encouraged by that, that right up next to the Holy of Holies is the high priest who has their interests at heart. And again, we see Christ, we see the right man who didn't pass through a man-made temple, but passed into the heavenlies itself to offer himself plainly in God's presence. And he was received on his own merits, not by grace, because he accomplished the work for us. Fourth piece of clothing was that fine linen turban. It was this thick material twirled about, stood up like a crown or that miter that you see pictures of. And the most important part of the crown of the high priest was this gold plaque fastened to the front of it with a blue cord. And on that gold plaque was engraved these words, Holy to the Lord. 38 tells us why. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear the guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be acceptable before the Lord. 
idea is that even if they offer a holy sacrifice, it's not going to be accepted unless the high priest is holy through whom they offer it. And only then does it become acceptable. And so we see here that not only does the high priest bear the people on his shoulders, not only does he hold them close to his heart, but he also carries them on his head because he's their covenant head. He bears the guilt of their sacrifices. Even as Christ bears the guilt of our sin upon his head. Even when Jesus accomplished redemption, we see the crown of thorns on his head. We see the accusation above the cross. He's the covenant representative that God levies the sentence of sin upon right there in our place. And as he applies redemption for us, no one can levy a charge against those whom God has chosen because Jesus, our covenant representative, deflects it and says, I have paid for this one. The accusations can't stick. As the saints look at our thousands of failings and shortcomings, we don't look at them. We look at the one who is holy to the Lord, not just with a gold plaque, but essentially, fundamentally, as a perfect high priest. It also shows us that all the things we do, we want to do good things. Sometimes we try to do good things and it doesn't quite work out. The sin nature is pretty tricky. But when, we all say, when it's all said and done, even our good thing is tainted by bad. But when it's offered through the Holy One, God views it as beautiful and acceptable and holy. Fifth and sixth is the coat and the sash. And the coat is in checker work for fine linen. The sash is embroidered with needlework. And so it's this lavish coat that's longer than the ephod and longer than the robe and this decorative sash. And the text says the purpose of them is to enhance the glory and beauty of the high priest's uniform because he is indeed holy to the Lord. And holiness is resplendent and beautiful. Well, the final piece of clothing is an unusual one. God cares about all of it. So the seventh item of clothing for the high priest was his undergarments. It goes down to that. And there were these linen, close-fitting boxers that the high priest and all the priests had to wear. When on duty, the priests had to wear them or they would die without the right boxer shorts on. They ensured that their nakedness was covered. But the only thing is, he's already wearing like five layers of clothes. Why such stress? Well, on the one hand, he's distinguishing the true worship of God from the false worship of the pagans. And the pagan priests were oftentimes almost naked and they employed sexual practices because paganism was always, always about reminding the gods of fertility. So maybe if you were involved in that way, the gods would remember to cause the rain to fall and the animals to produce. God's saying that's not how it really works. There's none of that. I know your needs. I provide for you. I'm your father who loves you. But on the other end, Another reason is because it shows the high priest's clothes don't make the high priest. Because it harks back to the garden when there was this no shame, vulnerable, open nakedness of Adam and Eve. No hiding. But you see, sin brings shame. Sin brings covering. And so they covered up. 
It's the natural result of losing our original righteousness clothing. God's looking at the high priest and saying, you do represent me. You do bring the people in my presence. I do view you as holy. But fundamentally, essentially, you're not. You're fallen just like them. You don't put the undergarments on, you die. And it just shows us we needed another high priest. We needed one that at its core wasn't polluted like the rest of us. We needed one that not only didn't have to wear the glorious, holy, beautiful clothes of the high priest because he was glory himself, but we needed the high priest who offered himself up as our high priest did, as Philip Ryken calls it, naked glory. And Jesus went to the cross, utterly shamed, and treated as refuse, made a byword and a curse word by being naked on a cross in front of everybody. And in that act, what Jesus is doing is he's taking into his person all of your guilt and all of that shame that results from guilt, all those dark crevices in your life, those pits of sin that just produce all the, the junk that we say, do, and think. He becomes the focal point, the black hole of all of that, and draws it into himself. But before the vision of God, that moment where he's a byword from man and, a, and enduring hell for us is actually the moment of greatest glory in the way God views things because it shows the depths that the heart of God will go to show love for his people. And for God, that is glory. More than beautiful clothes, more than a universe that shines in glory, it's the naked Savior taking our shame into himself so God can make alone guilty people cherished possessions and sons and daughters of the king. That's the point of glory. The high priest couldn't do it, but our true high priest does. And he didn't just accomplish it, but every day, every moment, he stands before the throne of grace and he lifts up those hands before the Father and he applies in a fresh, clean, renewing way the Father's favor of you and that your sins are really washed and done away with and He really does view you as robed in the splendidest garments of the high priest himself in the best possible way before His throne of grace. That's an incredible gospel that when you look at the high priest, not just a uniform now, but it now reflects the righteousness Jesus clothes you with that puts a spring in our step and helps us put to flight the evil one's accusations and walk by faith with such a loving Redeemer who carries us on His shoulders, holds us in His heart, and imputes to us His righteousness, makes us His people. And therefore, He saves us to the uttermost, not just most of the way, but all the way and all the way to glory. God's people said, Amen. Let's stand.